But, you know, if you're just joining us, we are in John chapter 18 this morning. The Gospel of John is one of the four, what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the last one is John. And you'll find them in kind of like the last, like, third of your Bible. It's, it's right after Luke and right before Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. So if you're just flipping through, those are all pretty big books. Um, you should be able to find it. We are in John chapter 18. You know, as we've been going through the book of John, we were, um, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at what's called the high priestly prayer in Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And on the, in the, in that prayer was the last kind of thing that John records for us, that Jesus really spoke in depth to his disciples. And, and while well, he was praying to the Lord, and he was allowing his disciples to overhear this conversation that he had with his father. And Jesus prayed really a prayer that, that focused on two things. He prayed that they would be kept, that God would keep them. That's the idea of protecting them because he says, I'm going to be sending them into the world. And so I want you to keep them in your name. You know, and Jesus is praying specifically for his disciples and for everybody that would believe in, in him through their word, which is the entire church, like for, through the ages. And he was praying that they would be protected by God as they're sent into the world and that they would like live with this deep unity that reflects the unity that Jesus has with the Father and, and his mind being so that the whole world would know the truth of the gospel, the truth of what he's done for them, that they would know that the Father sent him and loved them. That was, that was the end of Jesus' prayer. And it was the end of like this long kind of like conversation that he had with his disciples being, beginning clear back in John chapter 13 that's recorded for us. And what we saw last week is that they left the, that upper room and they went to what's known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, like we saw two things. We saw that, that Jesus was the sovereign one. He is the sovereign one. And that nothing happened in the garden or nothing is going to happen subsequent to that that, that was out of his control. He, he had this demonstration of his authority and then he willingly surrendered himself to the to the. Uh, to captivity by the Roman cohort that had come up against them, that Jesus was in charge from beginning to end. And, and the other thing we saw is that he acted in such a way as to protect his disciples. That very thing he prayed about, like he took action to protect his disciples and focused the attention on him so that they could be like set free. You know, one of the things we'll see, and we'll see this again, I think, in, in today's text, is that, is that everything is unfolding exactly as Jesus had said it would. Like last week, we saw that, that Judas was going to be, I mean, back in John 13, Jesus says that one of, the, one of the 12 would betray him. And we saw Judas betray Jesus last week, just like it had been spoken. This week, we're going to see again something happen, just like Jesus said it would. Nothing here is taking God by surprise. Nothing here is out of control. Jesus is in control the entire time and, and willingly is walking down this path to fulfill God's plan of redemption for all of us. You know, as we look at today's text, it's, it's the text where Peter betrays Jesus. And I don't really have sermon points this morning because it doesn't really, it's a story that doesn't really fall out into sermon points, but it does kind of follow the, the standard story arc that you often find in stories. Any English teachers here? We actually have English teachers. Okay. Now I'm insecure about this. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't have asked. So back when I barely passed English, um, we talked about the story arc where you have like the setting, like the bottom left corner there, verses 12 through 14, I guess is the setting. I thought it was only two verses, but I guess it's three. 
where, where John establishes what's going on and the kind of the characters. Then we have this rising tension in verses 15 through 18. And then we kind of come to the apex of it where there's this critical conversation that Jesus has with, with uh, the people that were holding him captive. And then in 19 through 24, things kind of resolve and they resolve really poorly um, at the conclusion of the story. So if you like points, just know we're going to be kind of following that standard story arc from um, what grade do they teach that, English teachers? Eighth grade? Okay, okay. I passed eighth grade. So um, <laughs> that's good. The, yeah, it only took me twice, yeah. So appreciate that, Bill. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> so that's our, that's our story arc today of how this, this is going to play out. So let me go ahead. Please stand with me as we read this, this encounter in the garden. I'm going to start reading at verses verse 12 all the way through verse 27, and then we'll pray and we'll get into the text together. This is God's word for his church. It says, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter was following Jesus and and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought in Peter. The slave girl, therefore, who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I said. And when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And as therefore sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said, therefore, to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter, therefore, denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for just kind of revealing to us um, your willingness to go to the cross for us, revealing to us what you call us to as your people. And I just ask that your spirit would be working this morning to, to build us up, to let your word go forth through my weakness and into our hearts that can often be cold and that we would be stirred to a greater devotion to you because of the time we spend here this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that Jesus is going to get at in this story that kind of unfolds that I think is in the mind of like John and the Holy Spirit as he records this story is is that he, Jesus is going to speak about, kind of in an indirect way, about what it means to be one of his followers and what it means to be a disciple, kind of that apex moment of that critical conversation. And I think it's a really important message for us this morning because it feels like in this world it's getting more and more challenging to follow Jesus. 
I mean, if you don't know what I'm talking about, like, wake up um, and talk to some of the young people here, because I think the young people are going to be like, oh, yeah, it's really challenging to, to follow Jesus in this world we live in. Or, like, I was, you know, thinking about my grandson as we were dedicating him, and I specifically prayed for wisdom for, him, for their parents, because more than probably any other age that I'm aware of, like, in my lifetime anyway, man, it takes wisdom to navigate the things that are coming after us. And, and here Jesus is going to kind of just distill it down to what it means to be one of his disciples in this text. But it starts off with the setting. You know, it's interesting because John kicks us off. You know, he talks about the Roman cohort. If you weren't here last time, a cohort is 600 Roman soldiers. Like somebody brought it up to me last week. This is the elite military of the day had come up against Jesus. In addition to, it says there in verse 12, like the officers of the chief priest, that would be the temple guard and the Pharisees. So this group is well over 600 people that came up to capture Jesus. And it says they brought them, they brought him to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Now, Annas is an interesting character, like, and there's lots that we know about him, like, historically. Annas was the high priest. He was appointed by the Romans in 6 AD, and and he kind of created this high priestly dynasty from which he ruled over the nation of Israel from. And the the Romans were happy to, like, back Annas's, like, kind of reign as high priest as long as Annas helped control, like, the people of Israel. And so, Annas was high priest. His son Eleazar was high priest after him. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who's mentioned in the text, was high priest after Eleazar. Then Jonathan, then Theophilus. These are all his kids. And then another one of his sons by the name of Annas um, was high priest in 62 AD. Like, this is a long stretch. This is a long run. His son, who bears his same name, Annas, was the one who, who took James the brother of the half brother of Jesus and threw him from the wall of Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley and then mercifully went mercifully went over there and had him clubbed to death and as he was suffering there below the wall having been tossed from from it by Annas like there's even in the uh, the Talmud in the Talmud there's even writings about the household of Annas about how corrupt they were he, he was in collusion with the Romans. The, the money changers like market that existed in the temple that Jesus overturned all the tables, that was called Annas's Bazaar because of all the money that he made off of like extorting the worshipers um, that came to worship. He would send his, his temple guard out to the villages to, like, to c- collect the tithe that was given in the villages to support the, the priests and Levites there, and he would take it for himself. Like This was a guy who was corrupt, like malicious, in collusion with the Romans, who was deceptive in like every way. He was just a bad, all-around, corrupt leader of the nation of Israel. And they bring Jesus to him. And then it mentions his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And it says, and he was the father of He was the father of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. And this is an important fact. So Annas, even like he's the power behind the power. Like, Caiaphas is the actual high priest. Caiaphas is the one that they should be bringing Jesus to, but they don't do that first. The first thing that they do is they take him to his father-in-law's house, the guy that kind of is pulling the strings from behind the, the scenes. In fact, we don't even, we don't even, like, John doesn't even record for us Jesus' like trial before Caiaphas because it doesn't matter. Because look what it says in verse 
14. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So what John's referring to is something that he recorded for us back in John chapter, is it 12 or 11? I think it's 11. John chapter 11. And this is immediately after when, when Jesus went and rose Lazarus from the dead, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to do. Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead and all the people were like following Jesus because of this great miracle. And so the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, it says, got together and convened a council. Now, let's just be clear. And let me be clear about one other thing. The chief priests were the ones that kind of ruled over the, the temple and ruled in Jerusalem that kind of had the official religious authority of the day. The Pharisees were more like the, the common folk people. They're the ones that kind of ruled over the synagogues. And this, the chief priests and the Pharisees were like pretty much natural enemies. It'd be like Republicans and Democrats and, in the ancient Israel. And, but they, one thing that they were able to unify around was the fact that they wanted to do something about Jesus. And this is the conversation. It's recorded for us in John 11. It says this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So their concern is, is that the, Jesus is, is getting so much popularity that the Romans are going to like shut it down and they're going to lose their position. Then it says this. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take it into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Listen to what it says in verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And then in verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So what was happening there in this secret council uh, with the high priests and the, the chief priests and the Pharisees was that the Spirit of God like spoke through Caiaphas simply by virtue of his position. He, he hated like God and he hated his son and everything that he represented and he loved his position, but, this, but God spoke through Caiaphas so that he prophesied that, that it was expedient that one man die on behalf of the nation and not that the whole nation perish. And then John tells us that it's not just the nation, but so that God might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's a reference to the church, this, this assembly of people that God is going to create from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, like that Jesus would die on behalf of, of his people throughout the whole world so that he could form them into his church, that he might gather them into one. It's the very thing that he prayed about in the high priestly prayer, that they would be one, that Jesus is going to offer himself up in their place so that God could do this new work among us. Now, it's like theologians call that doctrine the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, where your guilt gets transferred onto Jesus, and that like all of us as his people that have been called from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, like that he dies in our place so that all of us don't have to. Caiaphas is prophesying like the truth of the gospel to this simply because he was the high priest. 
And John's telling us, like, he wants us to know right out of the gates, like, there is no fair trial going on here. They had decided, I think it was about six months before, they had decided months before that Jesus was going to die. The, the verdict had been sealed. Any, like, pretense of, like, legal activity was just a pretense. Everybody knew where this story was going to end, or so they thought. It was going to end with Jesus in the grave. That's the setting. Jesus is standing before those guys with this mockery of a trial, before the, the, the power behind the power, this guy that's corrupt and hates Jesus to the core. And then we get this rising tension. Look what it says, starting in verses 15 through 18. And Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter was standing at the door outside. So here's the scene, is that Jesus is being taken captive, Peter and some unknown disciple, where we have zero evidence in the scriptures to, to give us clue of who that unknown disciple is, like literally zero. So you can speculate all you want, but zero, okay? <laughs> but the, and John's point, John's point isn't to talk about the guy that the high priest knew. It was to focus our attention on Peter. He introduces Peter again into the story. And what's going on is that Peter and this other disciple are following Jesus. And that disciple is somehow known to the high priest. And so he's able to get, go inside. And Peter is left hanging outside. He is unable to continue to follow Jesus. And I think one of the reasons why, like, John's the only one that records this detail for us. And he doesn't really expound upon it. But I think... Uh, I think the reason why is that he wants to, like, the God's, like, creating, a, like, a deja vu movement for, deja vu moment for Peter here. He's following Jesus, and then he's stopped, and he can't continue. Back in John chapter 13, back in John chapter 13, verse 36, there's this conversation between Jesus and, and Peter that happened earlier that night, and it says this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now listen, Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. Now, I think that Jesus is talking about so much bigger, something so much bigger than just Peter not being able to get into that courtyard. But I think if you were Peter and Jesus had just told you right before that, like that where he's going, you can't follow and you were following him and all of a sudden you got stopped at the door. You might be like, oh, wait, I heard about this somewhere before. Right? Did they just change the matrix? Like, um, seriously, nobody knows that reference? <laughs> Bunch of Christians. Um, <laughs> did I say that out loud? Okay. I, did I, did I, my wife, I might have just said something. I, I think she rolled her eyes. I, I could hear it, so... <laughs> So Peter is like stuck outside and those words of Jesus were, were uh, like, you know, Peter, you're not going to be able to follow me all the way. And I think Jesus is ultimately talking about like in death. But then, Jesus, then Peter is able to follow him inside. But listen to where the story goes, though, in John chapter 36. You will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Very next expression, Jesus answered. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. 
So Peter is stopped here. Maybe starting his wheels turning, he, then whoever this disciple is gets him like let in and he steps in and there's this servant girl whose job it is is to open and shut the door. And she says to him, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? If there's any like doubt about like what Peter was like maybe wondering at that point in time, I think it's, it's over now, right? The doubt's gone because all of a sudden he gets hit with this question. Are you a follower of Jesus or not? I am not. And we're just kind of left hanging there. Like, I think, we're, I think we're meant to feel the tension of that. Like, oh, Jesus says that Peter would, get, like, would only be able to go partway and then would be able to follow. And then he says he was going to deny him. And here's the first of these three times. Like, what, Peter? You denied Jesus? And then interestingly enough, we're just left with that like ringing in our ears and the camera angle then shifts back to Jesus. Look in verse 19. This is the critical conversation. Well, let me actually verse 18 before I go there. After Peter denies him in verse 17 and verse 18, it says this. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. That with, them, that with them phrase is, is an interesting phrase because we saw it last week in the garden when it talked about Judas, that Judas was standing with them. And now we have Peter standing with them around the fire, warming himself, like getting comfortable. And it's kind of hanging there, like, what's Peter going to do? Like, he already strike one. What's coming? And then the camera shifts to Jesus, verse 19. The high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. He asked about two things, and, and he's not really the high priest, even though they called him that. It's kind of like being the president. Like, once you're the president, you're always called the president, you know? But like, here they still called Annas the high priest, even though he really wasn't the high priest. And Annas is asking him about two things, about his disciples and about his teaching. John's the only one that records for us that, that Annas was asking about the disciples, that that was part of the conversation. But if you think about what's happening here, you're, you're with the power behind the power, with this plan that's unfolding to try to shut down this work of Jesus so that it doesn't upset the Romans. And Annas is not just asking about what Jesus has said. He's asking about his followers. He's probably wanting to find out who they are. Like how much do they, how committed are they? How am I going to hunt them down and shut this thing down so we don't just deal with one guy, but we deal with everybody that might be part of his thing? He's questioning about his disciples and about his teaching. You know, Jesus didn't really need to answer either of those things. He, you know, he kind of answers in an interesting way. It sounds like he's not answering both questions, but he actually is. Look at, look at he, how he answers. He says this, verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. So Jesus kind of answers his first question. He's kind of answering both questions. And, and the first thing he brings up is he says it both positively and negatively. I have spoken everything openly, and I have not spoken anything in secret. Like, Everything that I have taught and said and believed has been public. 
and has been open to scrutiny. I've been in the synagogues. I've been in the temples where all the Jews come together. I think what he's doing is he's taking a subtle, like he's making a subtle comparison between what's going on with Annas. He's like, you know, I've been with, I've operated with integrity. Everything I've said is open. Unlike where we are right now, Annas. It's in the middle of the night. I shouldn't even be here because you're not really the high priest. You've got this secret scheme that's unfolding. But me, on the other hand, I have spoken everything openly. I am the light of the world. And here I am in this, like, this assembly of darkness where you guys are operating under the cover of night to pull out your like wicked plan. So he takes a shot, I think, at Caiaphas, I mean, at Annas to begin with. Then the second thing is he points out how futile their, their uh, effort, his efforts are going to be. I have spoken openly to the who? To the world. Like, my message has gone out to the Jews, it's gone out to the Samaritans, it's gone out to other people through them. Like, if you're wanting to shut down this work that I'm about to, like, pave the way for, like, you are way too late. Because I have spoken openly to the world and where all the Jews come to gather. Like, I've spoken in the temple, I've spoken in the synagogues. Like, this message has gone out to my people and you are not going to be able to shut it down, Caiaphas, because it is way more, like, pervasive than you even realize. And then he says this, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. Behold, these know what I have said. So now Jesus starts to tell him a little bit about discipleship. He says, why are you questioning me? Since I've been so openly and since this word has gone out to my followers, like you can just ask them. They are those who have heard and who know, he says. So question them and they'll be able to testify. He doesn't say that explicitly, but he's telling Caiaphas to ask them. And they're the ones who would testify to what they know, what they've heard, and they know. Those are my disciples. So Jesus is answering kind of both of those questions. The disciples are those who know and have heard and can testify. So go ask them. You know, and the, apparently the, the guard that was sitting next to Jesus like, like picked up on what Jesus was putting down and slapped him across the face, right? Gave him a blow is what my translation says. Some, some of your translations probably say slap. And Jesus is like, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? You know, and the reality is this, is that Jesus has always spoken rightly. In fact, everything that is happening is happening exactly like he had spoken it. Everything. Judas's betrayal, Peter's eventual denial, his being delivered into the hands of like the Gentiles. I'm the one that speaks rightly, but if wrongly, why do you strike me? You know, and the things that Jesus had said already, like publicly... Caiaphas didn't need, like, or Annas didn't need Jesus to, like, review his teaching because it was clear. Like, they had plenty of grounds to, to like, accuse Jesus of blasphemy if the things he said weren't true. Like in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, this is kind of the end of Jesus, one of Jesus' sermons. 
Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. We looked at that last week. Like he's saying that he is God himself. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But he hid himself and went out of the temple. One of the things that Jesus said in the temple is like, hey, this is my house. I'm the I am. I'm God himself. And they were like, nope. John chapter 10. I and the Father are one. Like, hey, when you see me, you see the Father. Like, we're the same. And they picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus says, you know, my disciples are the ones who know, who have heard and who know and can testify. And this whole thing is a sham, Annas. I speak clearly and openly. And if they're true, those things that I've said, you should probably believe me. And if they're not, you have plenty of grounds to, like, crucify me as a blasphemer. Only crazy people say that stuff, right? Unless it's true. So we're kind of hang- left hanging with like, Jesus' definition of discipleship here is those who know, who he heard and know, who when you ask them, they can tell you. That's kind of, that's Jesus' last statement. And then the camera shifts again back, back to exactly where we left off with Peter. Look at verse 25. Now, Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So that we're back there where Peter's around the, around the charcoal fire and he's warming himself there. And they said, therefore, to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? So there's that same question from the slave girl. He denied it and said, I am not. And then in verse 26, one of, and this is the really interesting question, I think. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter had cut off. We saw that last week, that Peter lopped off the ear of the person in the garden. He drew blood. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Think about that for a second if you're Peter. Like this dude is the relative of the dude whose ear you just lopped off. So he was probably standing right next to him because they're like relatives. And the guy's like, wait, you look pretty familiar. I know, Peter, what you did. I saw you in the garden. I saw you like rashly try to defend the Lord even when the Lord was trying to protect you. Didn't I not see you, listen to these words, with him? Verse 27, Peter therefore denied it again, and immediately a cock crowed. Did I not see you with him? We saw Judas in the garden was with the Roman cohort. We saw Peter right before Jesus kind of like comments on discipleship with the the temple guard, like warming himself by the fire. And then the question is, are you, were you with Jesus? Oh no, I'm not with him. And the cock crows. Now it's interesting, the story, because John doesn't give us any of the details. It doesn't tell us how Peter felt about that. You know, in one of the other gospel accounts, it says that Jesus like looked at him and Peter went out and wept. Like it doesn't tell us that Jesus responded in any way to Peter. It just leaves it there. Peter denied Jesus 
end of story. But fortunately, it's not the end of the story. You know, I mentioned last week that, that this, this scene, this whole like, section of the book be, of, of Jesus suffering on the cross begins and ends in a garden. I'm getting more and more clues about this as, we, as I'm studying this through. It also begins and ends with Peter sitting around a charcoal fire, which is interesting to me. This isn't the end of Peter's story. He, like, rashly acted in the garden. He denied Jesus around the fire. But it's going to change a few days into the future. And I think we have to be honest about this. Like, it's easy to kind of, like, dog on Peter here. But Peter was, like, acting here on the other side of the resurrection. His Messiah, this one that he trusted with, is now under the powers of the of the Roman cohort and under the treachery of the Jews, and he is heading to his grave. And a Messiah that's going to his death is not a good a Messiah to be with. Right? That's just the, the way it works in this world. Like, oh, if your guy is going to the grave like San Francisco will be, Did you notice that, like, everybody here is San Francisco fans? It's like you, need, you knew you need to come to get God's favor. <laughs> Sorry, that was the wrong moment to bring that whole thing in, but it doesn't work that way. There's even grace for San Francisco. So they, they might gather together from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, right? Where was I even going with this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, going home. <laughs> and they picked up stones to stone him. <laughs> I, I told some people that if I had a Taylor jersey, I'd be wearing it. So, uh, anyway, let's go back. Rewind a little bit. Let's retract all of that. That is not the official position of Creekside Community Church or the Board of Elders. Any of That's... A Messiah who's going to his death is not a Messiah that's worth following, and only a fool would identify with him. But when the Messiah then overcomes death and comes out of the grave, you'd be a fool not to. And that's what transforms Peter. The garden that where the story kind of begins to resolve is the garden where Jesus steps out of the tomb. Peter has breakfast with Jesus around another charcoal fire at the end of the book of John. A Messiah that's going to the grave is not worth identifying with, but a Messiah that comes out of it absolutely is. And that's what transforms Peter's life. And here we are, you and me, on the other side of it, and we look back. And we can look back and see all of Jesus' words like perfectly fulfilled. Everything happened according to plan. And we see him like rise from the dead just as he promised. And so we know. And we've heard that he's worth following. In fact, you'd be a fool not to follow the one who overcomes death. Let me just 
make some application here. You know, turn with me in your Bibles to, I have this on the screen, but it, I'd love it if you read it in your own Bibles. Um, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, this is written by Peter himself, the same Peter that denied Jesus later in his life on the other side of the resurrection. And we can see how the resurrection transformed Peter. Look what he says. I'll wait till you guys get there. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, now listen, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Like here's Peter, a transformed guy. He says, I have this living hope. Like I know that this world is all under the reign of Jesus. I know that he is going to see me through to the end because that's what he says. Look what he says. Um, who has resurrection from the dead, he goes on, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's like, this thing that we had in Jesus Christ by virtue of his resurrection of the dead is imperishable, undefiled, is completely without corruption. It will not fade. It'll get, it'll always be like the new car smell forever. Like I've heard that, I've, heard, I've used this illustration here before, but I've heard the description of heaven as being like the never ending first moment. Like when you, when you experience, like if you step up to the edge of the Grand Canyon for the first time, there's this, there's this moment of like, kind of like surreal, like wonder and worship. But then it quickly fades and you're worried about your kids falling off, you know, like. <laughs> it will not fade. It'll always be that never ending first moment of, of experience. And it's reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God. The very thing that Jesus prayed for that God would keep them. The very thing that Jesus worked to accomplish, that he, he protected his disciples. Peter's saying, man, I, I have this hope now that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for me, and I am protected by God's power. Like, even though I've screwed up, the resurrection, like, changed everything for me. Made me realize everything was different. And then later on, later on in the book, he, he's talking to the church and he gives this exhortation to the church in 1 Peter 3. He says this. He asks this question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give account for the hope that is in you. Now, let me just comment about this for a minute. Peter's saying that he has this hope that is rock solid because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying that hope should be in us with such depth and with such reality and such like transforming, like transforming our perspective in this world that the world around us is going to ask you to give an account for it. They're going to be like, that doesn't make any sense. Like the way that you live in light of like Christ's coming kingdom, the salvation that is going to be ours at, that, at the end time, 
Like the hope that you have, Christian, should be so deep and so transformative and so like real that the world around you is like, like what is going on with you? And they're going to ask the question, like, you're going to have to answer for this, weirdo. Because it doesn't make sense to give an account for the hope. And it, but it begins with, look at the first phrase, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It means to consecrate him as the one that you owe all of your allegiance, all of your worship, all of your devotion, all of your loyalty. Set him apart as Lord and live in the hope that he's given you. This is the same guy that in front of a slave girl was like, nope, not me. Church tradition tells us that he was, Peter was crucified and he was like, you know, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus, so crucify me upside down. And so they crucified him upside down according to church tradition because of the hope that was in him because he set Christ as Lord in your heart. So like a lot of people go to this for like apologetics and, they, and they're like, oh yeah, I want to make a defense and so I'm, I'm going to win every argument. I'm like that's not what Peter's primarily talking about. There's some truth to that. He's like, no, you live with Jesus as Lord of all as you sanctify him as Lord in your hearts above all things. Live in the hope that he gives you and let your life be transformed by that hope. And then... People will see it, and you'll give an opportunity for you to give an account for it. It's because Jesus died and rose from the dead and is giving you this hope that's imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for me. And I'm protected by the power of God. And then he says this, but with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that the thing in which you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And if we hope in Christ, if we set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts, like our heart's response isn't going to be like, I mean, we're going to be gentle in our responses to people. We're going to respond in reverence. We're going to respond with a clean conscience. We're going to like live well, like have good behavior in Christ. And how much does the world need to see that? How much does the world need to see Christians who set Christ as Lord, who hope in this inheritance that we have, who respond with gentleness and reverence? Like that's everywhere today, gentleness and reverence. Right? I know it's not because I just brought up San Francisco. Um, <laughs> gentleness and reverence and a clean conscience. Set Christ as Lord in your hearts. And so Peter, his story is going to pick up again in a different garden around a different charcoal fire and he's going to have a different opportunity before the Lord. And being on the other side of the resurrection will change everything for him and, and it should change everything for us. Like, Peter has somewhat of an excuse. But for all of us, like, do we really believe what we believe? Do we really believe that Jesus' word is, like, 
going, everything that Jesus says is going to happen just like he promised. Like the testimony of the New Testament is that, right? Like all of the Bible points to this moment that we're going to be studying over the next few weeks. And, and it shows like, God, man, God's word is true and it is reliable. We know the resurrection's true. We know he reigns over all. We know he's given us his spirit. We, but are we going to be his disciples that really believe what we say we believe, who know, who have heard, and who know, and are willing to like, answer when people ask us? Because a, a, you know, Or do we not really believe what we believe? Because a Messiah going to the grave isn't really worth doing that for. But a Messiah that comes out of it is. And if we believe that Jesus has overthrown death and sin and all the powers of this world forever, and that he's called us and gathered us into one to represent him in this world, to live with that hope that he's given us, that he's going to protect us, well, then our responses should be different. We should respond like with clarity and gentleness and reverence and boldness and all of those things mixed together if we really believe what we say we believe. And if we don't, and we need to confess that to the Lord and just ask him to like deepen our faith, to grow it like, like, like it Peter did. In fact, in one of the other gospel accounts, I can't remember which one, earlier in the night when Jesus is talking about Peter, Peter being uh, um, like denying him, he says, behold, like Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. If any of you guys are bakers, like, you know, sifting, we have one of these like triple sifters at home where you dump the flour in it, like these blades, like, like chop it all up over and over and over again. He has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, Peter, is what Jesus tells him, so that when you return again, you'll be able to strengthen your brothers, which is what he's doing in, in 1 Peter. You know, sometimes you'll go through those times of like deep doubt maybe even denial. Yeah, but the Lord is the one to welcome you back, to sit around another fire by, with you, and we'll look at that later on as we get through to, to John 21. But he's the one that's coming out of the grave. So you, you Huda, why don't you come up to close us? You know, I just want to make a challenge to you to just ask yourself that question. Is how deeply do you believe what you say you believe here this morning? If you don't believe, like I am really glad you're here. Because I want to declare to you that like this work of Jesus Christ is, is uh, for you, that he's died in your place so that you don't have to perish. But if you do believe, like how deeply do you believe what you say you believe? Do you know? Have you heard it? Do you know it? And are you willing to like testify to it even in a world where it might be hostile? So Yehuda, why don't you close us in prayer? I mean, close us and I'll close us in prayer.